0: Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the text for the sermon today is taken from this letter, Philippians chapter 3, the verses 17 through 19. There, the apostle writes these words Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So far, the reading of the holy and infallible Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to our hearts. Dear friends, is there anyone in your life you try to avoid? It could be a family member, a co worker, a neighbor, or even a brother or sister in the church. It could be we had a run-in with the person in the past, and now there's a certain awkwardness. Or we just don't like the person. We don't click with them. We don't have anything in common with them. Now, that's certainly not ideal, especially not when the person is a brother or sister in Christ. But it can happen. It's a part of life. But did you know that there are certain people also in the church that we must avoid? In fact, we should want to have nothing whatsoever to do with them at all. And they are false teachers, and they're everywhere. They may not be members of our particular local congregation, but they are present in other churches. In fact, some of them are prominent leaders in the church, and they are leading many astray. And Paul speaks of such teachers in the words of our text today, Philippians 3, the verses 17 through 19. And it's to these words that we turn our attention with the help of the Lord. Our theme is avoiding false teachers. And we'll consider, first of all, their identity, and secondly, our pattern. The Church of Jesus Christ has always been under attack by false teaching. During the first few centuries, the Church was attacked by Arianism, which denied the doctrine of the Trinity, specifically the divinity of Jesus Christ. During the Middle Ages and the Reformation period, the great enemy of the truth was the Roman Catholic Church. And still to this day, the Roman Catholic Church teaches things that are not scriptural, such as the doctrine of the veneration of saints, especially Mary, and the doctrine of the Mass and the primacy of the Pope, Later on, the church came under attack by rationalism, Arminianism, Unitarianism, and various sects such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and others. Yes, attacks on the truth of God abound on every side. And it was no different during the first century AD, the time of the Apostle Paul. Then too, the church was under attack by false teaching and Paul knew this and so he made a point in this letter to alert the Philippians to this and to warn them about it and he writes in verse 18 for many walk of whom i have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of christ paul here is referring not to people outside the church but rather to people inside the church These are people inside the church, even leaders, and he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now by that, Paul means they are enemies of the gospel. They are enemies of the truth that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he says there are many of them. Now, The Bible often warns against such people in Matthew chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And in the Olivet Discourse, he said, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. John 2 warned about the danger of false teachers in 1 John 4, the verses 1 to 3. and is now already in the world. Now Paul also warned the elders at Ephesus about false teachers in Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. He says there that after his departure, savage wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things to draw them away, to draw the disciples after them. In fact, as Paul himself says in our text, he had warned the churches many times of such false teachers. Well, he does so here again. Paul warns the Philippians about these false teachers. Now, who he had in mind exactly, we don't know. Paul doesn't specify. It's possible he was thinking here of the Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish Christians who believed that in order to be saved, one not only had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but one also had to be circumcised, and he had to observe the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. These people could also have been Gentile teachers who, influenced by Greek ways of thinking, tended to elevate the spiritual over the physical and the material, even denying that Jesus was a real man. But at the end of the day, we cannot say for sure. All Paul tells us is that there are false teachers in the church. Now, Paul does give us three of their marks. He says here, That their God is their belly. Now, the word belly here is a metaphor for all unrestrained, sensual, fleshly, and bodily desires. Whoever these false teachers were, they did not worship God, at least not in the first place, but rather their own sensual desires and pleasures. They put their sensual desires and pleasures before God. They worshiped their belly, in a manner of speaking. Secondly, Paul says, their glory is in their shame. So whoever these false teachers were, they committed shameful acts, and they were proud of it. They gloried in it. They boasted about it. They boasted in the very things that brought them shame and that should have made them feel ashamed. Thirdly, Paul says, they set their mind on earthly things. In other words, they were worldly men. They loved the things of the world and the pleasures of the world more than the things of God. And they pursued after them more than they pursued after the things of God. Well, such are the people that Paul warns about. And you notice he does so even weeping. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of himself as weeping in the present tense. As Paul thought about these false teachers, even as he's writing this very epistle, he begins to weep. Now, why does he weep? And Paul tells us because of their end. He writes, whose end is destruction. So, having become the enemies of the cross of Christ, having rejected the gospel that teaches that sinners are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, Paul knew that one day these false teachers would be destroyed. They would experience everlasting torment together with all those who refuse to repent and believe in the gospel. They would be cast into hell. And when Paul thought about this, when he thought about the punishment that awaited them, when he thought about their end, which was destruction, he began to weep. Now we're reminded here that Paul was not a cold intellectual. He was a sensitive and passionate man. And when he thought about these false teachers, even though they were the enemies of the cross of Christ, he was deeply moved. He wept. We can learn something from this. Sometimes when we encounter false teachers, our only response must be to condemn and refute. And our Reformed confessions take that same approach. All three of the doctrinal confessions of the Reformed churches condemn false teaching in no uncertain terms. The Heidelberg Catechism, for example, and the Belgic Confession condemn various teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and certain Anabaptists, The canons of Dort condemn the teaching of the Arminians, and rightly so, because all three of these undermine, to one degree or another, the gospel as it is revealed in the scriptures. And dear friends, we need to do the same. We must condemn and refute false teaching, but we should also weep. We should weep when we consider the damage that false teaching does to the church, and we should weep when we consider the end of those who teach it. Does that describe you today? Do you weep over the enemies of the cross of Christ? Such people may never be won over by our arguments, but they may be won over by our tears. Oh, that God would give us tears to weep over false teachers, perhaps more than we do. Well, the point is, there are and always will be false teachers in the church, and it's no different today. Just as in Paul's day, there is much error and even false teaching in the church. There's legalism, the idea that we can earn part, if not all, of our salvation before God. There's something called antinomianism, the idea that believers are free from the law, and therefore it really doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is whether you believe in Jesus. There's the so-called prosperity gospel, The health and wealth gospel, the idea that God's will for you is to be healthy and wealthy. There's the doctrine of perfectionism, the idea that a believer can attain such a level of sanctification that he no longer willingly sins. There's also certain extreme forms of Pentecostalism, the idea that the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available to believers today. And that if a person doesn't have these gifts, he cannot be a true Christian. And then there's egalitarianism, the idea that women as well as men may serve as office bearers in the Church of Christ. And there is inclusivism, the idea that the Church must accept everyone as they are, including practicing homosexuals. Now, these are all wrong ideas, these are all errors, these are all attacks on the truth of the Word of God. And in addition to this, we could could mention other errors as well, perhaps more common in churches that are well established. There's easy believism, the idea that that coming to Christ and living out of Christ is is not that difficult. It's a relatively easy and simple matter. You just believe and you're in. There's there's automatism, the idea that that when we grow up in the church and we reach a certain age, we're automatically converted and and therefore we should confess Christ and, and attend the Lord's Supper. There's also presumption, the idea that everybody in the church is presumed to be born again, including the children, simply because they've been brought up in the church. There's also hyper-covenantalism. This is the idea that baptism and membership in the covenant of grace is our ticket to heaven. Because we're covenant children, we have nothing to worry about. God has promised to give us salvation, therefore we have it. And on the other extreme, there's hyper-Calvinism, the idea that the offer of grace comes only to the elect. And therefore, in order to come to Christ, one must first know whether he or she is one of the elect. And we do that by attempting to discern the marks of election in our heart and in our life. Now, to be sure, not all of those who teach these things are necessarily enemies of the cross of Christ, but they are seriously deluded. And these are serious errors. And if left unchecked, will have a detrimental effect on spiritual life. So, how can we guard against this? How can we guard against false teaching? Well, there are some who say that we must always be charitable and loving towards everybody, even false teachers. And we should try to understand them. We should try to understand where they're coming from and even accommodate ourselves to them in the interest of preserving peace and unity. But that's not Paul's approach. Paul says we must avoid them at all costs. Oh, my friends, are we doing that? Don't ever think that you can win over false teachers. That hardly ever happens. I'm not saying it never happens, but it hardly ever happens. Most of the time, false teachers win over believers. We should engage false teachers to be sure, and we should respond to their arguments reasonably and well. But if they don't listen, we must avoid them and give them over to their own destruction. Well rather than follow false teachers Paul says follow me. He is our pattern. He sets himself up as a pattern to follow and that brings us to our second point. Paul in our text commands the believers at Philippi to follow his example. He writes in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Now this is the third time in this epistle that the apostle begins an exhortation with the word brethren. And whenever Paul uses the word brethren, he intends to convey a sense of intimacy and fellowship. And he does the same thing here as well. Paul appeals to the fact that he and they, the Philippians, are members of the same family. They're brothers of one another. In other words, he doesn't pull rank as an apostle. He brings himself down to their level. He calls them his brothers. And as his brothers, Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow his example. Now, literally, the Greek says, Be fellow imitators of me, or keep on being fellow imitators of me. The Greek word here is the word from which we get the English word mimic. So Paul here is exhorting the Philippians to mimic him, to do what he does and to live the way he lives. Now, this isn't the only time Paul commanded his readers to do that. He does so later in this epistle, in chapter 4, verse 9. There Paul writes, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And he does so in several of his other epistles. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he writes, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Well, here we have the same teaching. Brethren, join in following my example. Now, at first glance, it appears as though Paul is putting himself on a pedestal. It appears as though he's saying that he's better than anyone else, and that for that reason, they should imitate him. Some even are concerned that Paul should have said, imitate Christ rather than himself. So is this just pride on Paul's part? Is he in fact putting himself on a pedestal? Well, not at all. You may remember in verse 12, which we looked at last week, Paul acknowledged that he had not attained the goal of perfection for which he was striving, nor had he been perfected. And for that reason, he says, I'm pressing on. And what is more, in Romans chapter 7, he speaks of two laws warring within his members. By the one law, he wants to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, but by the other law, he wants to go his own way and do his own thing. That created, you remember, such a conflict within him that at the end of the chapter, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Some say that Paul here was describing his experience before his conversion to Christ, but that's simply not true. Paul was describing his experience as a believer. It was as a believer that he was constantly conflicted between doing what was right and doing what was wrong or evil. What is more, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Not I was the chief of sinners, but I am the chief of sinners. And so it's clear that Paul at no time considered himself better than or superior to anyone else. Well, if that's the case, why does Paul command the Philippians to imitate him? What does he mean by that? Well, he means this. He means follow me. He means imitate me because I have made it my life's goal to become more and more like Christ. And by God's grace, And through much suffering and many trials, I am, at least in part. So Paul is saying, if you want a practical living example of what it means to be a follower of Christ, just look at me. Let me be your leader. Let me be your guide. I will show you the way. Follow in my footsteps. Imagine you had to travel for many days through a thick jungle full of wild and dangerous animals. Well, it would be of immense help and comfort if you had someone leading the way. Someone who was more experienced than you are, living in the jungle. Someone who knew the dangers and could guide you safely through. Well, that's the idea here. Paul's not claiming to be perfect, but he is claiming to be more experienced and further along the way than the Philippians, which he was. And on that basis, he says, follow me, imitate me. And not just him, but also, he says, those who so walk. That is to say, those who follow the same pattern of imitating Christ. Now, Paul here is probably referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of whom were well known to the congregation at Philippi. And he mentions them because Paul was in prison in Rome, and as such, he could not be with them in person. But Timothy and Epaphroditus were. You may remember, as we learned back in chapter 2, That Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi and he would send Timothy shortly as soon as he knew the outcome of his trial. Paul knew that Timothy and Epaphroditus followed him very closely indeed. And therefore he encouraged the Philippians to follow them as well. Don't just follow me, he says, but follow those who are like me. Now, maybe somebody says, but is it right to imitate a man? Should we not strive to imitate Christ alone? Yes, of course we should. And Paul would certainly agree with that. In the previous verses, he declared that it was one of his goals in life to be perfect like Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, which I quoted earlier, Paul writes, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So Paul here acknowledges freely that Christ is the ultimate model. He is merely a copy. But he also knows, as I said earlier, that sometimes the best way to learn something is to study an example, to follow an example. And that's the case here as well. The best way to understand what it means to be like Christ and to live like a Christian is to imitate someone who is like Christ and is imitating Christ and is living like a Christian. And so Paul commanded them to imitate him. Now that same command comes also to us. We too are commanded in our text to imitate the apostle Paul, and for good reason, because there's a lot we can learn from Paul. When you read Paul's letters, you learn, for example, how to endure suffering how to handle criticism, how to worship, how to handle money, what our priorities should be in life, how we should interact with unbelievers, how to witness, and on and on. In short, we learn from Paul's letters what it means to be and to live like Christ. That's why it's good not just to read Paul's epistles, but to study them carefully and to preach from them. For the writings of the Apostle Paul teach us what it means to be and to live like Christ. But not only should we strive to imitate Paul, we should also strive to imitate any godly believer whose life is patterned after Christ. For the Lord is, in his grace has given us many living examples, also in the church, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Usually, but not always, Usually this is an older person who has walked many years with the Lord, but it could also be a child or a young adult. None of these people will be perfect, but we can still learn from them and strive to imitate them. We can hold them before us and say, Lord, I want to be like that. Please help me to be like sister or brother so-and-so in my church. This is and ought to be especially true for the office bearers of the church. The office bearers of the church, the pastor, the elders, the deacons, they're sinful men just like everybody else. But they ought to be examples to the congregation and their piety in their walk of life in their church attendance and how they deal with conflict and how they minister to people's needs and, and everything that they say and everything that they do. And so in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy, let no one despise your youth but be an example to the believers in word, and conduct, in love, and spirit, in faith, and purity. And in Hebrews 13, verse 7, the writer exhorts his readers there, Remember those who rule over you. Who are they? These are the office bearers, the pastor, the elders, the deacons, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. In 1 Peter 5, verse 3, Peter exhorts the elders not to be lords, but rather examples to the flock, examples to be followed. Office bearers are to be living examples of what it means to live like and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, no office bearer will ever say that he excels in that, nor will any office bearer say of himself, follow my example, imitate me. But he should strive to be an example to the congregation, and so should we all. If we claim to be Christian. We should be an example to others, both within and outside the church. Parents should be examples to their children. Members of the congregation should be examples to each other. We should all be living in such a way that we can tell others to imitate us. For a Christian, by definition, is a miniature Christ. He is a representation of Christ on earth. Well, is that true for you today? Is your life such that it is worthy to be imitated It's a terrible thing when people claim to be Christian but don't live that way. When we're one person on Sunday and another person during the week. If that's the case with you, my friend, something is terribly wrong. Then you need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive you, to work by his Holy Spirit in your heart to make you a true and living follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that what the Christian life is all about? Last time in the series, we saw that Paul's one aim in life was to be like Christ. Well, here in our text, he explains how we can do this. It's by imitating him, even as he himself imitates Christ. My friend, is that your goal in life? What do you want most out of life? Is it riches? Is it popularity? Is it a good name? None of these things will last. You can't take any of them with you when you die nor can they meet the deepest need of your soul. Only Christ can do that. And therefore I urge you, if you've never done so, look to him, believe on him, imitate him, and keep doing so until the day comes when those who believe on him will be made like him in every respect, that they shall live and reign with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reform Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www. Dot F-R-C-N-A dot org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can make a donation right on our webpage. Our webpage again is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.